um, I want to take you back to the Vietnam War. There's a gentleman there by the name of Dave, and as the story tells, he's going back in one of the Vietnamese rivers, and he is in a little raft with six other, you know, special forces individuals, and as he's there, they're scouting because the day before, there was a battle there. So they're going down this Vietnamese river, and they're looking around just to sort of count bodies and things and see what's happening. And so as he's going there, suddenly he hears shots coming from among the bushes, and so instinctively, he pulls out a phosphorus grenade, takes the pin out, pulls his hand back like this, so he's ready to toss it, and a bullet hits the phosphorus grenade, and it splatters right there in his face, just burning and melting. is hot. He falls in the water because of the blast. And you know, many people think that water soothes burning sensations, but there are some things where water makes it worse. Electrical fires, oil. You ever had oil catch on fire? Don't throw water. It goes, there goes your kitchen. And, and, and you know, dry chemicals and things like that. And so a phosphorus grenade Water makes it worse. It burns faster. It burns harder. And so he's in there. He's feeling this. Somehow he manages to make his way to shore. Once he gets there, he just passes out. The people were thinking that he has died. They call for a chopper to take him back to base. While he's in the chopper, he, he, he wakes up and he can't get any words out because there's size of his face that is oozing, that is melted. Right here near the esophagus, there's also a hole there from, from the phosphorus, and it's just really bad. As he gets back to the hospital in base, he's there, and, and he's, in, he's in and out of consciousness. He's feeling pain. He's there for a couple of days, and he gets news that his wife is coming, that they're flying her in to see him. And he had mixed feelings because when he's hurting, he's like, I want my baby. I want my wife. I, I want her to be there with me. And, and so he, he's, but then he was also sad and he had mixed feelings because he is in an open war there in the base. This is disaster. This is a war zone. And as he is there, there's a lot of all discombobulated individuals missing the leg, missing an arm. Something is wrong. And he saw wife after wife come. They will go in the room, they see it, they cry, <laughs> they take the ring, toss it, and they leave, and they go right back. And he saw wife after wife abandon their spouses because they couldn't handle what had happened to them. Half of the body missing, something missing, and so they couldn't handle that. So he prepared a speech for when his wife came. He was, you know, he had it all done packed and just to supplicate and let her know, you know, hey, this is where I am. But when she entered the room, he forgot his speech completely. And all he could say in tears is, I'm sorry for the way I look. His wife looked at him, smiled at him, and she went to the side of the face that it was all oozing and puzzy and burnt and gave him a kiss. And she says to him, honey, what makes you think that I marry you for your looks anyways? <laughs> and that kiss let him know that he was accepted even though he felt that he was just not acceptable. Even though he felt that it was just not him. And you see, our situation is the same as Dave's. We feel because of the filth in our lives that we cannot be accepted, but we have a God that accepted you in spite of you. You are never going to be good enough 
next to the almighty, perfect God? You never will. But his grace is sufficient. My God loves you, and he would accept you in spite of your looks. Let me tell you this. Spiritually speaking, none of us are winning a beauty contest. We all look hurt in the sight of perfection, spiritually speaking. And, and, and so, but in the eyes of God, he just looks at you with love. You know, Isaiah describes, go with me to Isaiah 6, so you get an idea of our condition. I, I'm sorry, Isaiah 1, Isaiah 1, verses 4 and 6. I'm confusing you, and it's my fault. I'm trying to rush because we got communion today, but, but we'll, we'll get through it. Uh, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 4. Five and six. Here's what it says. Alas, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away backward. Verse 5. Why should you be stricken again? You will revort more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faints. Verse 6, from the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises are in putrefying sores. They have not been closed or bound up or sued with ointment. We are being described in our sinful conditions the way lepers wear. Let me ask you, work your way to Mark 1, and as you're working your way there, what do you think? Is that a pretty picture? Sores and oozing from hand to toe. I mean, let me tell you this. There's some sides of me that I look in the mirror like, yeah, mm, mm, mm. And then there's other sides like, mm, we ain't looking that one. You know, hold your breath in and see if you can suck it in a little bit. I mean, there, there, there's parts of me I like, parts not so much. But according to our spiritual condition, there's not one part of you that is just not oozing with sores and corrupt all around. You are, in the essence, a spiritual leper. But look at Mark 1, beginning on verse 40. When you have it, say amen. Mark 1, verse 40. Look what it says. Now a leper came to him. This is Jesus now. Imploring him, kneeling down to him and saying to him, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Verse 41, then Jesus was moved with compassion, stretched out his hand, and touched him. You don't know how significant this is. We were doing the, the, I was doing the Sabbath school this morning for, for Bill, uh, for the juniors, and we're talking about classes. Some of the kids were sharing how in school sometimes they're the only ones sitting alone in class, where no one sits next to them. Jesus will sit with you. We talk about how there's people that point fingers at you because of the way that you look, the way that you dress, the way that you speak, the color of your skin. Jesus is willing to look at you with eyes of love and compassion, and he is beyond colors, attire, social status. He sees you for who you are, and he loves you amazingly. And here you have a leper that it was considered unclean to come anywhere near them, let alone touch them. And here he just says, look, if you're willing, please heal me. And he just touched him and says, look, buddy. And he's like, wait, what? I'm being touched for the first time ever. People treat me like a plague, literally. And yet he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. Verse 42, and as soon as he has spoken, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. 
Work your way to 1 John 5. 1 John 5, that's the scripture reading for today. And, and as you're working your way there, there's something that I want you to understand. And is that the Trinity, this is God the Father, the one that loves you. God the Son, the one who dies for you. And the Holy Spirit who equips you, who whispers to you and says, hey, you know better than that. You know, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity is not turned off by your sin. They're not turned off by your condition. They're not turned off by how you look. You cannot be so bad that they will want nothing to do with you. You cannot be so spiritually disgusting and repulsive that they won't stretch out their hand and touch you. My God loves you. When Judas betrayed him, Jesus called him friend. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and everyone around, the biggest accusation that they had of Jesus, he is a friend of sinners. That was a compliment. That wasn't an insult. My God is a friend of sinners. You see, the Trinity does not say to you, shape up and then I can accept you. It says, I'll accept you so that you can shape up. Now notice it's not saying stay where you are. It's not saying we're going to remain in this condition that we're in. What we're saying is that your condition doesn't matter because he welcomes you with open arms. And he embraces you. And he says, we'll work on that. Joey, that nasty attitude of, you have, of yours, we'll work on that. All that gossiping you do right there in the back pew, it's okay. We'll work on that as well. You know, everything. We'll welcome it, but now we'll work with you. We accept you so that you can shape up. So that you don't remain where you are. Does that make sense? And, and so, you know... I, I want you to understand that we should not question ever whether or not my God is open to accepting me for who I am. You know, I, I have three lovely kids, two beautiful girls, and imagine that one of them, imagine that one of them, somebody says, hey, so are you part of the, the family? You know, are you, you part of the Suarez family? Are you part of the family? And imagine that one of them says, I hope so. How do you think I feel about that? I want the answer to be a resounding yes. Is that your daddy? Absolutely. Are you part of the family? Yes. I want that. But yet, somehow, we doubt whom we belong to. Look at 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. Does everybody have it? 1 John 5, 13. Look what it says. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may hope that you have eternal life. I'm sorry, what does it say there? That you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. The idea is that you may know. And so how is it, you know, that we can really know that we are accepted? How is it that we know that we have eternal life? Well, what we need to be safe is simply to accept God's love towards us. Plain and simple. And some people are saying, yeah, but how can someone like me be part of that? Well, there are some truths that we need to know. The very first one, do you know that Jesus loves you more than you can ever imagine? When he cried out on the cross, my God, my God, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is because he was separated from the Father because he had taken in all of the sins. He experienced separation from God so that we didn't have to. He took our place in dying so that we didn't have to. That death should have been ours. He was willing to go to the graves so that we could have everlasting life. This is the truth. And he would have done it. A couple of weeks ago, I told you, he would have done it all over again, even if it's just for one person. He knows you. He knows who you are. And so here's the thing. Here, here's the heart of the matter. 
nothing, nothing can separate us from God except you. You can choose to not welcome that salvation and that gift that he's given freely to you. If you let him in your life, he'll work all that filth out. Understand that I'm not saying that you could do whatever you want because one safe, always safe. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is that it doesn't matter how ugly your life is, has been, or will be, my God will welcome you with open arms. And while he's in you, he'll work through you and he'll get rid of all of the hot mess that our spiritual lives is. He'll get rid of the sores and everything and then we'll come out, you know, like, yeah, can't, you know, because spiritually speaking, the Lord has worked in us. Does that make sense? Yes? And so, but one thing that we need to understand, though, is that we cannot change our hearts. We cannot change ourselves. Only God can. So this is my prayer for you for Christ Objects Lessons, page 159. It says, Lord, take my heart, for I cannot give it. It is thy property. Keep it pure, for I cannot keep it for thee. Save me in spite of myself, my weak Unchrist-like self, mold me, fashion me, raise me into a pure and holy atmosphere where the rich current of thy love can flow through my soul. 1 John 1.9 says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to what? Forgive our sins and to cleanse us from a little bit of what? I'm sorry, from all unrighteousness. He is faithful and just to forgive us. You see, I want you not to doubt that you belong to the family of God. I want you to understand that you do belong. Now, there's a couple of barriers that sometimes keep us from doing this. There's five quick barriers that we're going to go through. The very first one, barrier number one, and I hate this term, but it's a term many people are familiar with, is legalism. This is the very first thing that keeps us from fully accepting the assurance of salvation that we have in God. And so here's the obvious definition of legalism. It is the belief that one can earn salvation but one's own behavior. We can earn our way to heaven by being good enough, by doing a checklist of things, and now we are in heaven. And most Christians, regardless of denomination, will reject this. They say, no, no, I'm not. I understand that it is by grace. But the problem with that is that with our mouths, we can start really pretty talking about grace and faith. But yet, in a not-so-subtle way, you know, a very underlying way, we still have legalism affecting the assurance of our salvation. Spiritual bodybuilding lessons, page 86, says the following. A root of legalism is the misunderstanding of how the Bible defines sin. We sometimes define sin incorrectly as primarily something we do, like sinful behaviors. Spiritual growth largely becomes a process of overcoming a mental list of sinful deeds. The infinite, enormously varied and colorful palette of love gets reduced to a gray list of prohibitions. Focusing on sin as mainly something we do creates an attitude that makes it difficult for a person to fully comprehend grace. So we, because we have a misunderstanding of grace, we somehow mess it all up. And so here's some common problems that come because of that. A, the assurance of salvation becomes completely fragile. 
you know, members, they believe that they're saved by faith, and they believe that they lose the assurance of salvation every time that they do something wrong. They sin, they messed up, okay, now I'm no longer saved. They stay lost until they ask God for forgiveness, and then now they're saved again, and then the discouraging process begins all over again. But it is not how it works. B, the other thing, uh, suddenly matters of personal preference are viewed as sin. So suddenly, you know, we have a list of things, of behaviors, how you dress, how you look, the music you do, what you eat, all these different things. We have a checklist, and if it doesn't meet my standards, then you are sinning. The problem with that is that the, least, the, 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 the list just completely varies greatly, and it's a matter of personal preference for a lot of those things that are not even biblical or cultural preferences, and it has nothing to do with what does say of the Lord. But we go out there and make all this checklist of things, and we say, does say of the Lord when the Lord does not say it. I mean, for example, and for time purposes, I won't give you too, too much or, or, or beat you up too, too much, but, but I'll give you a biblical example, you know, with Jesus. My favorite, most, uh, my favorite example for irony in the Bible. Here you have Jesus, heal this paralytic man. He's walking with his mat. Take up your mat and go. Somebody says, hey, why are you carrying a mat on Sabbath, the day of God? And he says, well, the guy that healed me, he said to pick up my mat and go. Wait, he healed you on the Sabbath? Oh, guys, we got to figure out how to kill this guy because he healed on the Sabbath and told a guy to carry a mat on Sabbath. So carrying the mat is okay. I mean, it's not okay. Healing is not okay. But planning a murder, that's A-okay to do on the Sabbath. Do, do you see what I'm saying? Suddenly we have a checklist of things, and we say, does say of the Lord when the Lord does not say it. And then we feel like, hey, you're violating my personal list of things, therefore you are a sinner. See, victory is seen primarily as an outward event rather than an inner process. Because we're so focused on everything that is on the outside, sometimes because of this, we are hard on people. We don't realize that transformation can be taking place inside, even though the outside, you still see what's happening. Let me tell you this. You know, I, I used to be a personal trainer about 80 pounds ago, and one of the things that I would tell people, look, the first couple of weeks and stuff, just because you went to the gym today, don't go stand in the mirror and do this. You look exactly the same. One day of hard work is not going to make you lose weight. I mean, I, I work hard all last week, shoveling, you know, concrete and carrying buckets. I still look the same. I think I gain weight. I don't even know how does that even happen. But understand that transformation is not an instant. So you start hitting the gym. You keep the, the, the routine and the exercise and the diet little by little. And the, the transformation begins inside before it's reflected on the outside. But because we're focused on outward things, we're out there pointing the finger at people, talking about people, looking at people, criticizing people, nagging people because exteriorly they don't meet our list of criteria of what a saved child of God ought to look like. But you have no idea of the transformation that has been taking place inside. And when it comes to the outside, it's like, whoa, who are you? What in the world just happened? And that's how it takes place. But because we focus outwardly, we neglect to see what's happening inside. And that's a huge, huge danger. Spanish church in New Jersey that I used to serve in years ago, going back to the, to the mid late 90s, um, we had an issue there where we were focused about how everybody was, you know, ladies couldn't shave their legs, they couldn't wear makeup, they couldn't dye their hair, they couldn't have nail polish, a, a wedding band on the pastor, whoo, may God have mercy on your soul. You know, a, a guy volunteering to do special music from the pulpit with tattoos, whoo, glory hallelujah, to the Luya, you're going to burn. You know, and, and they had all these criterias. 
And, 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 and we were very good looking. We looked apart. And then we learned that the, the head elder and half of the ladies in the church were having affairs with each other. I mean, it was like a brothel kind, kind of thing going on, you know, or an orgy. And yet, all we did was make exterior good looking sinners. All we did was took sinners and put a little bowl in them and said, oh, you look so pretty now. Now you look like you're approved because we focus on the exterior, which leads me to the next thing that comes out of that D. Externals dominate our religious perspective. Go with me to Matthew, Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, and when you have it, say amen. Matthew 23, verse 23, and when you have it, say amen. Here's what it says. Matthew 23, verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay tithe and mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Verse 24. Blind guys who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. You have to understand, Jesus was a funny guy. He always made funnies. You know, you're talking more of a little speck in your eye and there's a plank on the end. You know, and here your little gnat, oh, look at the little gnat, and then the camel hung. I mean, can you picture that? And he's describing this because that is exactly what we were doing. And so these things put you in a legalistic perspective that hinders the grace of God. Rather than focusing on what matters, go with me to Mark chapter 7, and when you have it, say amen. Because here's the thing. I'll be the first one to tell you that what you do does matter. But i also be the first one to tell you that it is not the only thing that matters. What you do is a reflection of what's happening inside of you. It is the result of what comes out of your heart. So if I see ugliness in the outside, spiritually speaking, okay, if I see ugliness in the outside, spiritually speaking, that means that there is rottenness in the inside. And that's why we shouldn't worry about the outside. We should worry about what is inside. Is Jesus Lord over you? Is he in your heart? Does he live with you? Does he live inside of you? And when he is in you, there's no room for all the hot mess. And he works it all out. But that's why the focus ought to be in who you have a relationship with rather than a checklist of do's and don'ts. Does that make sense? Mark chapter 7, verse 20. Mark chapter 7, verse 20. Because this is what happens. You know, Scripture does come then, you know, both sinful heart and sinful deeds. But one flows out of the other. And we commit that because of what flows out of our heart. So Mark 7, verse 20. Look what it says. And he said, what comes out of a man that defiles a man. Uh, verse 21. And from within, out of the heart of man, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders. Verse 22. Thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lunatics, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. Verse 23, all these evil things come from within and defile a man. And I have to tell you, quoting Jesus, stop focusing on the speck in your brother's eye and focus on the plank in your eye. See, I just read this list here. And you are thinking, well, I don't do any of that. Do you know that when you get angry at your brother, it's the same thing as killing them? When was the last time you even spoke to some of your family members because you were done with them? 
When was the last time that you really, you know, went out of your way to greet someone rather than going out of your way to avoid someone because of issues that you have with them? Understand that that in itself is murder. When you lie, it's just like killing as well. Adultery is not just a physical act. Yes, it also includes pictures on your phone. Or walking down the street, and you think you're slick putting on the shades so that nobody sees. I had an uncle that every time we went to the beach, he would constantly hug his girl. And I would say, why would you do that? He says, oh, so that I could look behind her and she wouldn't know. And he would just like hug her. Hey, honey. Whoa. Yeah, yeah, you. Whoa. You know, and it's like, come on. What is this? Even thinking about it, Jesus said it is the same as committing the act. So if I were to read this couple of verses again, how many of you will have to get out because you're not worthy to be here? Hmm? That's why I can't sit at the door and keep people away from being sinners because I have to be the first one to excuse myself. Just like a hospital for sick people, this is a place for sinners. However, the wonderful thing is that come in as you are, but we pray that if you allow God in your life, you will walk out of here a totally new individual completely, completely different. Steps to Christ, page 43, it says, we shall often have to bow down and weep at the feet of Jesus because of our shortcomings and mistakes. But we are not to be discouraged. Even if we are overcome by the enemy, we are not cast off, not forsaken, and rejected by God. Step to Christ, page 38, it says that the character is revealed by, not by an occasional good deed or an occasional misdeed, but by the tendency of the habitual words and acts. God looks at the tendency of your life, not an oopsie moment here or there. The idea is that as you walk with Christ, those oopsie moments will be less and less and less. Or it may happen to you that I walked into a relationship with God thinking I only had one or two things wrong with me, and then when I started hanging out with him, it's like, oh, good Lord. How in the world do you even look at me or consider me when I'm just all over the place? My God loves you and will work in you if you will let him in. Assurance barrier number two, we have a distorted God concept. We have a concept of God that is completely different. Here is from a book called Why I Am Afraid to Love by John Powell, page 10 and 11. Before anyone can really give his heart, soul, and mind to God, he must first know how God has loved him, how God has thought about him for, from all eternity, and desire to share his life, joy, and love with him. Christian love in response to God's infinite love, and there can be no response until one has somehow perceived that God has first loved him so much so that he sent his only begotten son to be our salvation. I like Romans 5.8. It, it illustrates this much better. But God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. If you look at the verb there, and I got some scholars in the back that might correct me with the active participle, something, genitive, I, I messed up in Greek. I think I barely passed, but C's get degrees. But, you know, it, 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 it made it, but I did learn what it meant in here. While we were still sinners, it's active. While you're in the middle of committing the act, God is saying, I am willing to forgive you. And to me, that is phenomenal. Because I have to tell you, my kids have done something sometimes, and, and, and at that moment, I'm upset. It's not until minutes later that it's like, it's okay, I forgive you. But at that moment, uh-uh, Christ, in the middle of doing it, he is willing to forgive you if you simply ask him. 
And I love that. I love that. So a distorted view of God. In the 1920s, there was a philosopher of American communism, Jewish man by the name of Mike Gold. And Mike Gold, he, he lived in New York, and uh, he wrote a book. This is from his book called A Jew Without Knowing It. He wrote a book, and when he wrote in this book, he was recounting a story how his mom used to tell him, go play outside, but don't go past that street or this street. Gave it like four streets not to get out of because what happens is that they were living in what he refers to in the book as the Jewish ghetto. And so he never knew that he was a Jew. He never knew the hatred or anything like that that would happen to Jews. But one day out of curiosity, he ventured outside of those lines. And when he went out there, he went out to a Christian territory. People are looking at him, and, and, and they started pushing him around and says, are you a kike? He's like, I don't know. You sure you're not a kike? I, I don't know what that is. And he says, where do you live? And like a good old kid who memorizes address, he says, I live here and here. You are a kike. I guess. I don't know. You are a Christ killer. And so what they did, they said to him, you know what? We are Christians and you kill Christ. So they gave him a beating, all blooded up, tore his clothes, sent him back, get out of here, Christ killer. And remember, this is Christian territory. We are Christians and you kill Christ. He went back home. Mom saw him. What happened? And she's trying to keep her composure and she's crying. Excuse me, what? Baby, what's going on? He's like, I don't know. Mom, who is Christ? And so years later, he finds himself in a Catholic charity place eating and he is there, and um, shortly after that, he passed away. But there was a sister that knew him, uh, Dorothy Day, and she says the following of Mike Gold. Mike Gold eats every day at the table of Christ, but he will probably never accept them because of the day he first heard his name. That was the only experience he had of Christ that warranted a beating for him. And so many of us have difficulty accepting God and his love and his grace because we have a distorted view of him. We have been given and we have been beaten up just like Mike with the guilt and everything for so many years that we cannot see God clearly. We don't know who Christ really is and we cannot fully accept him. And so therefore, the own God that we have built in our minds is too remote and is untrustworthy and therefore we cannot trust God. Barrier number three is depending on feeling. Many of us feel that we're not saved because we feel that we're not saved. Let me tell you this. Many people get baptized, and the first thing that I tell them when you get baptized, you're going to come out of there probably not feeling any different. It's not magic water where you come out, whoa, it's a symbolism of your commitment to God. It's you saying, I want to start a brand new life with me and God. I'm giving my life to him before God and before men. This is what I do. You may not walk away feeling any different. And so the best way, I like this analogy. I read this in a, in a book, um, an analogy of, of how faith and fact and so forth works. Um, imagine a train, right? And the fact is this. Fact is the engine, meaning God loves you and promises to save you. That's the fact. Faith is the passenger car. You trust God and he has kept the promises in your life. And your feelings is like the caboose. It's nice to have a caboose in a train. But you don't really need it. It's not as important. The fact and the faith, the engine and being in it, is all that really matters. And so, you know, sometimes we're going based on our feelings. But let me tell you this. Often your feelings, you can't trust them. You're not supposed to follow your heart. You're supposed to lead your heart. And often you're feeling like you're not unworthy. You're feeling doubts. You're thinking that God is, is a million miles away. You're thinking that you're not for, he's not going to forgive you. But that's when you should trust and have faith. 
trust and faith over feelings at any given point. Does that make sense? Barrier number four, worrying too much about you. You need to stop worrying about it. You know, imagine every time my wife and I get into a disagreement, she gets mad at me because I forgot to throw out the trash or left the toilet seat up. That's not a problem at home, but let me give you an example of that. You know, know, left the toilet seat up. Honey, are we divorced yet? You know, forgot to throw out the trash. Are we divorced yet? Forgot to do that. No. You you know, just because you may have an argument or spend a couple of weeks on the couch, if you have a couch, it doesn't mean that you're divorced yet. The same thing with God. Just because you may backslide here or there doesn't mean that safe, not safe, safe, not safe, and you're going side to side. It's not how it works. Imagine this first-time farmer. He's out there with some onion bulbs, and he's planting them, and he plants it, and then tomorrow he goes and digs it out. Nope, not growing yet. Puts it back in there, and then the next day pulls it out. Nope, still not growing yet. And a week later, wife is saying, honey, what are you doing? I'm trying to see if the bulbs are growing. She's like, are you crazy? What in the world? And, And so you don't need to do all of that. Not at all. Steps to Christ, page 49. It says the following. We should not make self the center and indulge anxiety and fear as to whether we shall be safe. All this turns the soul away from the source of our strength. Commit the keeping of your soul to God and trust him. Talk and think of Jesus. Let self be lost in him. Put away all doubt. Dismiss dismiss your fears. Rest in God. He is able to keep that which you have committed to him. If you will leave yourself in his hands, he will bring you off more than a conqueror through him that has loved you. And then the last barrier, barrier number five, barrier number five is our difficulty trusting. Let me tell you this. I got bit by a dog once. Let me tell you this. A dog is running at me, barking, and the owner says, he just wants to play. He's not going to bite. Bring it. Let's see. Yeah. Come on. There's no way. Uh Uh-uh. I fell for that once. Never again. (laughs) And and, and so, you know, it's, I'm leery. And I love dogs. I mean, I worked in a pet shop for many years. I took care of them. I mean, it's good. But I just, I'm broken. And this is what happens. When it comes to the trust piece, the reason why we have a tough time accepting God and having the assurance of salvation, many of us here have a checklist of what Christ people ought to look like, and we make sure that everybody knows what's on that list. We go around, and what we have built is a culture of judgment. Rather than focusing on self, we're focusing on others. Let me tell you this. If I look at people around this room, I might be better than you, but I'm definitely worse than you when you compare. So I'm not even going to look at you. I'm just going to compare myself to you. Yep, I am much better. But when you compare yourself to Christ, you recognize your own struggles and failures and where you are. He is the only one that you ought to turn your eyes to. He is the only one that you should focus on. And when you're looking more at God and less in the world, You will notice now that when you do see people, you will see them through the eyes of Jesus. Trust is a key thing, and here in our church, we have the opportunity to fulfill this type of trust. Here in our church, we have the ability to make people feel welcome. And here in this church, we have the ability to stand up against the standards of this world. Right now, out there in the world, you church people are just judgmental people who are anti-everything. 
and I want nothing to do with you because of the guilt that it brings. But yet, we can tell them, you know what? My Father in heaven loves you, and I love you too. Come as you are and give them a kiss. Not literally, please, because then you'll get sued and stuff. And yeah, I, I mean like the story in the beginning, that when you see someone with oozing and sores and everything, spiritually speaking, you let them know, we welcome you in spite of your looks. Don't say that because then they'll get confused. You understand what I'm trying to say, right? Give them a kiss. Let them know that you are accepted. Let them know that you are welcome. Let them know that my God says, come as you are, and whoever the Father brings to me, by no means will I ever reject or turn away. Everyone is welcome. And when they come, my God does what he does best. He is in the salvation business. He is in the restoration, do-overs, fresh start, and restitution business. My God is an amazing God. I love him dearly and I'm grateful for what he has done for me. I pray that you're grateful for what he has done for you. But I also pray that you're not selfish and share that grace, that forgiveness, that mercy with others as well. We all fall short of his glory. Won't you give everyone around a kiss? Let's go ahead and pray. Father God. We love you, and we thank you for being such an amazing God. Lord, we thank you for the assurance of salvation. I know sometimes we question it, and we go back and forth. But, Father God, please forgive us for even doubting you. Please forgive us for even answering the question, I hope I'm part of God's family. No, no. May we all be able to say, I know that my God is my Father, and I know that I am his child. Father God, may you bless us and keep us right now. It is my prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.